Romans chapter 8. I want you to know, oh my goodness, this has been so hard the last three Sundays to be sitting where you are. I heard great messages from Romans chapter 8, but I'm like, I want to preach Romans chapter 8. So this is my Sunday. I'm up. I'm up. Romans chapter 8. We're going to jump into verse 18, where I want to help you in Romans chapter 8, verse 18 and following. Look at me a minute. Find it in your Bible, but then look at me. I want to help you to build a theology of suffering well. Now, I hope you're not put off by that. You're like, oh man, I'm sorry I came. I don't want anything to do with that. I hope that doesn't put you off because folks, there are so many verses as well as entire passages in the Bible that were designed to help you build a theology of suffering Well, you say, I'm not even a theologian, Brad. I'm just a regular person. Folks, we all have a theology. I just need yours to be good. You just want it to be biblical because to the degree that your theology is biblical or not will be the degree that you do well in life. So I want to help you build a theology of suffering well. I know there are those out there, lots of them now, making lots of money with books they're writing, who would try to lead you to believe from the scriptures that there's a way to avoid suffering altogether if you get it right, if you follow these six secrets, principles, keys to getting in the zone. Above the fray of suffering and trials, because you just hadn't figured this out right. You're not, you're not using the right formula. You're not following the right principles. Folks, they're trying to say you can do that with the scripture, but you have to do a lot of fancy footwork and you have to jerk around a lot of verses to come up with that kind of theology. I want to show you what the Bible actually teaches. Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 18. And I hope you have a Bible with you because I want you to see it for yourself from the Bible. So turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 8. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now here's what I wanna do. Before we dive into any of the particulars, and there's some great particulars, I wanna just frame it up with a big canvas background of what is the big picture. Often this can be helpful at first glance at a passage, step back from it and say, okay, what are the standout things in that passage? I see three standout words that are woven in and out of this passage like three silver cords that hold it all together that make all the difference. Did you see any of them? Hope, used six times. Waiting, used three times. And groaning, used three times. Look at them with me. Hope, in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Verse 24 and 25, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is not seen, that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope 
for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Hope, 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 six times. Then the word wait, three times. Look at it in verse 19. And here's what I want you to notice before we look at them. I want you to see there is an adverb bumped right up against this word wait every time. Because when I say the word wait to you in our culture, we picture I'm sitting in a doctor's office. My appointment was 3.30 and it is now 4.20 and they still have, I'm waiting. I'm at Jiffy Lube waiting. I'm in the doctor's office waiting. I'm at Dixie High School waiting for my daughter who's supposed to be at that door and she's not here yet. I'm texting her. Hello. I'm waiting. It's just a posture of waste. Waste. I'm wasting time. It's, it's usually resignation. Just, ah. Uh, that is not what this word entails when you see it in the Bible. What word is bumped up in front of the wait every time in this passage? Say it. Eagerly. 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 It's a posture of expectation and anticipation. Now go with me. Verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits. Eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 23. And not only they... But we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Folks, I hope you sensed it. There is a sense of hopeful, ex- it, picture this, it's like a child standing on tiptoe, holding father's hand with the rope right there or the railing right there, waiting for the parade or whatever it is that, that's coming. Is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? That's how children wait, right? It's like eyes wide, looking, looking, looking. I want you to capture that Because that is the sense in this passage that we are supposed to have in the midst of our groaning that makes all the difference. See, what I want to do in this passage, and I don't think it's just me wanting to do it. I think it's the Spirit of God wanting to do it, and I hope to be his faithful messenger, is God wants our groaning. And we're going to get into it. Groaning is real. He doesn't want us to deny the groaning, airbrush the groaning, pump sunshine into it and pretend it's not groaning, call it something other than groaning. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible's real. It's groaning. It's painful. It's awful. But here's what the Bible does by God's Spirit. He weaves two other cords around our groaning of waiting and hoping. Tiptoe expectation and anticipation for what's coming. What's coming? What's coming? Who's coming? Who's coming? And what we know about Him. Now... With the hope, six times, and the eagerly waiting, three times. Let's look at the groaning, three times. Groaning, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Verse 23. And not only they, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves. Verse 26, likewise also the Spirit helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Oh, listen to me. If you check out on me and don't hear anything else, get this. God intended to give us a way to persevere through pain and suffering. And it's not those books you could buy. And it's not the nonsense on the Christian cable television you could watch when you get home today. It's this right here in Romans 8. You persevere through very real pain and suffering by having these two cords of waiting and hoping woven around your groaning. And that's what I want to talk to you about and help you with. This is how you persevere This is how you do this. And the two things that I see in this passage that help weave those cords around us is the Spirit of God living in you and the Word of God speaking to you. 
Spirit of God living in you. So the beauty of this, it's an inside out work as well as God's word speaking to us. And as God's word speaks, the spirit within us resonates and gives you greater understanding and drives it home, brings it home, brings it home. You have the spirit of God living in you, Christian. And you have the word of God speaking to you. And while some of it may still be confusing and uh, a lot of it you understand, praise God. Because the Spirit helps you to understand it, enlightens you. It's not all just a mystery. That's how God helps us to persevere. To persevere in the face of very real pain and suffering. But now get this. If you're not a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. But if you're not a Christian, you only have one cord. You will only ever experience one of these three, the groaning part. That's all you'll ever be conscious of and aware of. And that's all you'll ever feel is the groaning, the groaning, the groaning. It's only by the grace of God and the work of Christ in your life that these two other cords begin to be woven. And don't hear me saying, man, when I trusted Christ, boom, I got a truckload of hope, a truckload of anticipation and hopeful expectation. No, it's a process. Process. If you walk with the Lord, he will begin to weave around your groaning that does not go away more and more hope and expectation and anticipation as you know him better and as you learn more about him and as you look for him and you anticipate and you hope in all that he said it's a process of having these two things woven around your groaning so that you can persevere see here's the deal this is my first point that I want to make the groaning the groaning in this passage is internal internal and universal we all get this If you're aware of the groaning, listen to me. It doesn't make you special. It just makes you human. It validates your humanity. This groaning validates your humanity. It's what sets us apart in all of creation. Because we're human beings created in the image of God, living in a fallen, broken world, there's a God-likeness to you. And I'm not talking just you Christians. Everybody with a pulse here today, there's a God-likeness about you. You're created in the image of God. But listen, that means you groan because you have this sense of injustice. This world is not right. It's broken. It's dark. There's some horrific things going on. What what do I do with this? You groan. Now, maybe if you're here and you're young enough, because here's my point. The groaning is internal, universal, and it grows louder and louder the older you get. I'm not just talking about the way your knees sound when you go upstairs. That happens also. But I'm talking about it's internal. So if you're here and you're saying, I don't know what you're talking about, here's my short answer to you. If you don't know what I'm talking about with this groaning, just keep living. Just keep living. Just keep living. Because what it means that you have this sense of groaning, all it means is that you've lived long enough to personally experience real suffering and to walk with loved ones that you care about deeply in their suffering and sometimes that's harder than your own isn't it as a parent sometimes you think if I could remove that from my child and take it I would all the suffering we experience on behalf of those we love and then it's compounded even more by a day we live in of communication and instantaneous know everything that there's not a tsunami or a hurricane or a destruction or, or, or a, a nut that, that unleashes a machine gun on a crowd. There's nothing that goes on that you can't know instantly and it's overwhelming. The suffering that you experience, the suffering that loved ones experience, and your awareness of the suffering on the news of people you don't even know, both through calamities and at the hands of other people. So, my first point is simply, this groaning that Romans 8 is talking about is universal. If you're human, you got it. So the question I have for you isn't, are you groaning? You are. And it's going to get louder as you get older. My question is, what do you do with this? 
What do you do with this groaning? And as it gets louder, you know, I'm 51 years old now. I have not suffered to any degree like many people, but I have suffered. And as a pastor, I've had the privilege and the heartache of walking very close to so many people who are suffering. I know more joys than you know with God breakthrough moments, but I also know more sorrow and messes and heaviness than perhaps you know. What am I going to do with that? And then I also live in a world where I make the mistake sometimes of watching the news. And then it's just like tilt. It is just too much between my own and the people in this church family. And what I just saw there, I just have this sinking, overwhelming sense of the weight of it all. It's wrong. Right? I mean, sometimes it doesn't even have particulars to it. You can be overwhelmed and the groaning can just be related to the just overall injustice in the world with sex trade and with genocide and with ISIS and with Ebola and with every other atrocity of what's going on. Your, your heart begins to break. So my question is, what do you do with that? Where do you put that? See, as human beings, unlike your golden retriever or the houseplant, we have this desire to sort it out and make sense of it. Sort it out and make sense of it. How can I resolve this? How do I connect the dots? What do I do with this? And here's where, while the groaning is universal and internal and natural, you're born this way, the response to it The response to it, the way people choose to deal with it, is all over the map. And that's my second point. The human response to this groaning is quite varied and really hinges on your view of God in the midst of this groaning. So you've got to make a decision right off the bat. As soon as you begin to be very aware of this and it gets louder, the human heart also begins to say, Uh, Is there a God? Is there a God? How could there be a good, loving God in the midst of a world with this much darkness, this much brokenness, this much atrocity, this much that's not right, not just? And so there's this discontinuity because here's the other deal. You can head down a path of just saying there's not a God and trying to convince yourself there's not a God and read all kinds of books that tell you there's not a God. Problem? You know there's a God. So I'll just leave that alone. You know there's a God. But we wrestle with how could there be a good loving God in the midst of all this? The Bible says you know there's a God and he put his law in your heart, Romans chapter two. And it resonates with there's some, there's a right and a wrong and there's a, so I, I'm connected to something bigger than this. I came from something bigger than this. So you gotta decide is there a God? But even when you make that decision and say you conclude and I hope you would, there is. You're still not done. You've got to then go on and decide and make a decision. Do I place that God inside the circle of my pain and suffering? As close to me, near at hand, and as someone who has tasted suffering himself and understands the suffering I'm going through and has tasted the same kind of suffering. Do I put him there? Or do I place him outside my circle of suffering and pain as simply an observer? Is God... And maybe he even cares, but he's not close at hand, and he himself has never tasted this kind of suffering. Even after you wrestle your way through that, you're still not done. If you conclude he's in the circle of suffering and pain, and I pray that you would, because that's the truth of the matter. You still have to go on and decide, is he just a God who exists and he's in the circle of my pain and suffering near at hand as one who has tasted and knows the kind of suffering I'm going through? And that's it. He can cry with me. He can weep with me. He can relate. Or is he a God who not only has tasted the suffering that I taste, but has done something definitive fundamental and cosmic to redeem and rescue and conquer sin and Satan and suffering and death. I believe Romans chapter 8, if you read all the way to the end, we didn't, 
You read all the way in to verse 39. Do that this afternoon. Read all the way to the end to verse 39 and you'll find that Romans chapter 8 answers all three of those questions in the affirmative. There is a God. He's inside the circle of your pain and suffering. He's tasted it and he didn't just taste it. He gave his son to taste it once and for all and to rise again from the dead so that we would not have to taste it forever. This is time bound but there is one who has conquered forever sin and suffering and Satan and has redeemed it. That's what you see in Romans chapter 8. That's what you see from God's word. So it really hinges on what you do with God in the midst of all this groaning. And see, if you're a Christian, some of you clapped. As I talk that way, your heart starts beating faster and you're like, yes, yes, yes. It thrills you to hear that kind of talk. But let's be honest, there's some of you, that's a lot of God talk. And I'm uncomfortable with that because I don't want there to be a God because then I am accountable to someone. And so there's other ways to deal with this than what I just described. There are other alternatives. People step onto other paths as a way to deal with this groaning. Here's one. You can try to mask the groaning. Just try to mask it by staying distracted. By staying so distracted with busyness, with busyness and prescriptions. And our culture provides a truckload of both. Truckload of both. Just mask this with distractions and prescriptions. You can work, 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 work. We're in a day of such connectedness, right? I got my Dropbox where I can have access to all my files, even from home, from the patio. I'm just connected, connected, connected. I could think about work. I could work on work. I could respond to work. I could do work. I could just do work. Stay so busy working. I see some wives laughing and nudging certain husbands. And one of them works here, and I want him to deal with that so that he can keep working here. (laughs) You can just work so much. That you don't have to think about it. Or you can play so much. You can try to mask it by staying so amused. And we got 24-hour entertainment. We got cable television. You got the internet. You got so much to stay, to stay so stimulated and so amused and so distracted. And thirdly, though it sounds ludicrous, because we know you're groaning. But you see people head down this path. You could just stay so cerebral. So cerebral debating whether it exists. You say, you're kidding me, Brad. No. And you could make over $100,000 with a chair of philosophy at some university doing that very thing. Throw on a turtleneck, smoke a pipe, drink your favorite hot or cold beverage, and for hours discuss the ins and outs of the possibility of is evil real? Does it exist? Dude, it does. Okay? So you could work, 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 play, 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 or debate, 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 debate as a way to mask this groaning that is innate, internal, universal, but at the end of the day, it doesn't work. You're still groaning. In those quiet moments when the music stops, when you finally check the last email of work, when you begin to think, what is this all about? When you've gotten to a certain place in work and you don't have the satisfaction, When your own philosophies and things you're saying sound like empty, empty words, you're still left as a human being with, I groan. What do I do with this? Now, don't make the mistake. You may be thinking, I wish it was true. Okay, I'm a Christian. That means I don't go down that path, and so I'm okay. Most Christians don't. Some do, but most don't. But just not going down that path still doesn't mean you're on the right path. The other thing you can do is you can try to mask this groaning by twisting the scriptures to come up with some kind of happy little formula. You just have to ignore 60% of the Bible to do that. And you're going to have to create your own God, create your own Bible, and create your own little happy formula that's sprinkled with a few smattering of Bible verses. Can you just string together some random, isolated Bible verses and build yourself a happy little formula? That was weak. Yes, otherwise Thomas Nelson and Zondervan and Harvest and all the publishers that said no to my book wouldn't be able to publish those books. 
There are people that call themselves Christians that are doing it, stringing verses together to come up with a happy little formula that says you can avoid suffering and it's not God's will for any of his children to suffer. And they sell well because it's what we want to believe anyway. You just have to ignore 60% of the Bible. Entire passages you have to turn a blind eye to. Get this, entire books like Job. What do you do with Job? 42 chapters, you got to say, ah, there is that. And he was a godly man, blameless, righteous. God says, have you considered Job? It doesn't work to say, well, he was doing something wrong. No, that's the point of his friends that were not such good friends. They were wrong. In the end, God says, you were wrong. Ask Job to pray for you now and offer a sacrifice for you because I'm ticked at you because you told him the wrong thing. He was a godly man and God's purposes and designs had it that he should suffer like that. Oh, you're gonna have to ignore Job. You're gonna have to ignore Lamentations. That is a dark book. It's one big groan. Lamentations, First and Second Peter, the whole book of Hebrews, the book of Revelation. These are all places that were written to Christians who were suffering intensely and desperately needed to know how do I persevere in the face of pain and suffering. So let me tell you the right way. Let me tell you the right way, but I want you to buckle up and prepare yourself because I'm about to use a word that might startle you. Here's the right way. You can embrace the groaning with a heart filled with hope because of the presence and promises of God in the midst of your groaning. You can embrace the groaning, own it, embrace it with a heart filled with hope because of the presence and promises of God in the midst of your groaning. And let me give you four reasons right out of these verses of why you should have hope in the midst of your groaning. We want to we twist this cord of hope around your groaning so that you can live in tiptoe expectancy, trusting your father, gripping his hand, and looking, looking, hopeful, looking, expectant. Here's the first reason you can hope in the midst of your groaning. Number one, your groaning pales in comparison to the glory that is coming your way. And I don't, you know, our groaning is personal. It has our name on it. It doesn't happen in general, does it? It happens in particular to you. As much as you may be aware of your own particular groaning and suffering in detail, I want you to think for a minute about the glory that is coming to you in particular. He says, for the glory that's going to be revealed in us, there's glory that has your name on it. It's not just coming in general. I hope some of that spills over on me. I hope I get splashed with a little bit of that. No, just like suffering has come directly at you, listen to me. Glory is coming your way, Christian. Yours. Look at it in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings, and now I want you to stop before you even read the rest of the verse. Three words into this passage, three words into this passage about groaning, hoping, waiting, he gives us one little word that changes everything while your circumstances remain absolutely the same. But one little word that changes it, for I consider. It is the word in the Greek, logizomai. It's the word from which we get our word compute. Computer, calculate, compute, analyze, take a hard, serious look at it. Paul is saying, take a look at your suffering. Now we're good at that. We don't usually need help. No one makes an appointment with me and says, I'm just not getting into my suffering in detail enough. In general, I just think about it. No, no, they come in, they have thought about it. They have rehearsed it. They have talked to themselves about it. It's in living color. Paul is saying, to stick with the accounting term, because it's an accounting term, draw a line down the middle of the page of your life, a ledger. And on this side, write down your suffering, all of it, in detail. Don't hold back. All of it. As awful as it is, all that you feel, all that it's done to you, just don't stop there. Come over to this side of the ledger and write down your understanding of all the glory that is coming your 
way. All that God is yet to do in redeeming both your body and all of heaven and earth. All that is coming your way. But see, to get to the glory side, you've got to be reading your Bible carefully enough, prayerfully enough, often enough, and having people in your life, other brothers and sisters at close range that can hold on to you in those moments when you still lose perspective and can run with you and can walk with you and can pick you up. You cannot do the Christian life alone on your own apart from God's people or God's word. But some of you are trying to do it and your your suffering side in the gory details is so outweighing the glory side You struggle to go on. Glory needs to exceed gory. But the only way you do that is by seeing God's word. And you see it again. You're like, oh my goodness. Some of you are, you know exactly what's going on in the news. Who's the latest with Ebola? Who's the latest with this? What tragedy is happening? I'm not telling you it's a sin to watch the news. But my friend, if you are taking in news on a regular basis, a diet of just tons of it, and you are neglecting reading this, don't complain to me that you're struggling to persevere. It's the Spirit of God living in you and the Word of God speaking to you that begins to wrap cords of hope and expectant waiting around your groaning. you got to get to this side. And Paul says, if you do this right, consider, calculate, analyze, take a hard look. If you do this right, glory will outweigh, outweigh gory every time. Every time, every time, every time, every time. He says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered the heart of man all that God has prepared for those that love him. And you read these places in scripture, I'm reading them now as I go through the Bible, where where in Isaiah he talks about the lion's gonna lay down with the lamb. He's gonna restore this, redeem this, new heaven, new earth, no more sin, no more suffering. No, You see God value, you see Christ coming back, you see the sky split, you see... Folks, I can't go on and I can't read one more email about adultery, about divorce, about child abuse, about sexual abuse, about financial problems, about child problems, about cancer, about lupus. I can't do it if I'm not reading God's word. And don't say, well, yeah, you're a pastor. You're a Christian. And he's called us all to run the race with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher. Of, you cannot run this race and persevere without huge, huge intake of this right here. Here's where you get the glory side. Here's where you get the glory side. You don't even know about the glory that's going to be revealed in you unless you read this. So, first way you can have hope in the midst of your groaning is to understand that your suffering, whatever it is, in all its gory details, pales in comparison with the glory that's coming your way. Number two, reason you can have hope in the midst of your groaning. Your groaning's no accident, but it's by design. And so it's not the result of a cold, random, godless universe that just slammed into you. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Two words tagged on to the end that changed the whole sense of that statement. Oh, where we are right now, take the word futility, put in frustration, put in just a sense of injustice and wrong. Yes, right now, all the world has been subjected to a sense of futility. There's a curse of sin Things are broken. Things are not right. But now get this. Not willingly. Creation didn't just do this. But by him who subjected it in hope. Who's him? See, if you're not careful, you may think, Adam, he sinned and threw us all into this category of sin and brokenness. True. But Adam doesn't offer us any hope. He just makes us a sinner like him. Oh, it's Satan. Satan right now holds control over the world. No, because Satan wouldn't give you any hope in the midst of that. It is God. Now, some of you, I didn't just help you. That just makes you even more uneasy. You're like, great. You don't want it any other way, my friend. 
God is not the author of sin. But God is sovereign even over sin and evil and this futility that we have right now. You say, well, then explain some of these awful things. How could any of that be good? How could there be a purpose? How could... I can't. But I would say along with Warren Wiersbe, we don't live on explanations. We live on promises. There's promises in this passage, right? Tiptoe, expectation, anticipation, holding dad's hand. That he's good. He's told me there is a plan. There are purposes. He didn't promise. See, we, we have this tendency to think, if I would just get an explanation on what's going on with my job, if I just got an explanation of what's going on with my kids, even though I taught them and we had Bible time, we had family, if I could just get an explanation, I would, I, you, know what hap- you know what our nature is? I get an explanation for that and all I want is an explanation for something else, explanation for something else, because we want to be in control. He says, trust me, you get promises. You get promises. You get promises. There would be no end to the explanations. Think about a child. When you answer one question, is that usually it? Hey, why blah, blah, blah? Oh, they're like, silence. Totally satisfied. That just leads to the next and the next and the next and the next. And we are no different. God knows that. If we head down that path of God's job is to answer all our questions, give a full explanation of what's going on, that's all that would be going on. He says, I give you promises. Creation has been subjected to this futility by him in hope, in hope. There's a greater purpose. He has a greater redemptive purpose and plan in all this. So your suffering is not just random and not the result of a cold, godless universe that just slammed into your life. That's why he can go on to say what he's going to say later that we didn't read in Romans 8, 28. If you grew up in church, you've heard it. If you've been here, you've heard it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for, does he say all things are good? Work together for, and now maybe for the first time you've seen that verse in context. Leading up to that wonderful verse is a whole lot of groaning. A whole lot of what is going on. A whole lot of futility and frustration. That's why he gives us the promise. We know God causes all things to work together for good. Oh, what a contrast. What a contrast to the kind of hopeless, hopeless drivel that people like atheists like Richard Dawkins and so many like him serve up to us and our kids. And we wonder why kids are killing each other. We wonder why kids are, it's skyrocketing, the prescription drugs for kids, mood-altering drugs for kids. Kids used to have hope. Kids used to laugh. Kids, we just wanted them to be more serious. Now they're way too serious. They're in their rooms and it's dark and they're wondering why I should go on living because they're being told things like this by Richard Dawkins. In a universe of blind, physical, genetic replication, some people are gonna get hurt, other people are gonna get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason to any of it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. Oh, give me a loaded gun and let me just blow my brains out. And then he says, oh, but there's reasons to have hope. There's reasons to have a meaningful life. Really? Name one. This futility, this frustration, this brokenness that we're experiencing right now, while we don't get all the explanations, there is a sovereign God still in control and we are where we are right now by his decrees and sovereign plan that he did this in hope. There's hope, there's a purpose. He has a purpose, he's gonna redeem this. Let me give you another reason you can hope. You're groaning, you can hope because you're groaning is a part of a greater symphony of groaning that existed long before you uttered your first cry and all of it has a glorious expiration date that God is in control of and it cannot last one moment longer than he's already decreed. It's on his calendar. The day that all this, you will be redeemed, glorified body, no more sin. Heaven and earth will be redeemed. 
The lion and the lamb will lie down together. There will be justice. Christ will be seated on his throne and things will be right. There is an expiration date to what you see right now, this futility. Look at it with me. Look at the expiration in verses 21 and 22. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Now this groaning that gets mentioned three times in these verses. Notice the word picture that he chooses to give for this groaning. What kind of pangs? Birth pangs. So let me make a comment here. There's groaning and there's groaning. You walk down the hallway in a hospital, an oncology floor, where people are in agonizing pain as their body has been eaten up by cancer. That's one kind of groaning. You walk down the hallway of a labor and delivery floor and there's groaning. But the hope is this is going to produce a baby boy a baby girl. God says, get it. This is labor and delivery groaning. Oh, it's groaning. It really hurts. It's really hard. You want it to end. Most women I know do, unless they're on an epidural. They still would like it to end. There's pressure, pressure. He tells you, you this that we're experiencing is labor and delivery pangs, and it is going to produce Exactly what he intended. Something that is going to blow your mind. Like you've never seen. Lastly, I want to give you a fourth reason that you can have hope in your groaning. One of the sweetest. This is so sweet. You do not groan alone. You do not groan alone. Because here's the deal. Those of you that have suffered really suffered, then you know part of that suffering that makes it so difficult is the sense that you have as a human being of being isolated from other people and cut off. It's very common. Common human tendency to think no one understands. No one gets it. No one really knows what I'm going through. It's the sense of loneliness and isolation of cut off from God and cut off from other people. That is some of the worst part of this groaning. I, some of you are going to be able to relate to this. I remember our first pregnancy for Vicky back in Columbia, South Carolina, at five and a half months pregnant. She goes to the doctor for a regular checkup, no heartbeat. Baby's dead. She calls me. It's one of those moments that you just feel like everything goes into slow motion. I remember going over, it's confirmed. This is not a miscarriage, and I don't want to make light of that. That's heart-wrenching. I'm talking, we're going to have to deliver a dead baby boy. And they bring him out with a little knit cap like they do. He's blue. I hold a baby boy that's born dead. And I remember driving back to the church, and just the whole world seemed black and white. And if I saw anybody laughing or anything that looked joyful, I found myself almost enraged thinking, how can anybody be laughing? How can anything, your sense of where you are personally is that it's not right, it's not right, it's not right. You feel like you are cut off, like you just can't get to anybody else and nobody understands. Listen to me, in those moments, there is a precious, precious promise here. The Spirit. Look at it in verse 26. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. God, get this, God the Spirit doesn't just groan with you, He groans through you. And takes your prayers that sometimes you can't even shape up. You ever been hurting so badly? You don't even know what to pray. You can't even form whole sentences. Your prayers are broken up by just sobbing and silence. Let me tell you, the spirit groans through you and takes those broken, 
discombobulated words or no words and carries them to the throne of grace before your great high priest, Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say, get it together. I need full sentences. I need a solid theology. He says, you're my child. He accepts you right then in that mess and will help you. That's what this passage is teaching. Your groaning can be wrapped around with hoping and waiting because it pales in comparison to the glory that's coming your way. And it's just part of a groaning that's existed for as long as there's been people. And there's an expiration date on it and you do not groan alone. Don't listen to your feelings. Do we ever feel like we groan alone? Oh yeah. That's why you gotta know God's word. And maybe you're saying, Brad, great. That sounds great. I'm sure there's some heroes of the faith somewhere that have lived that way. Brad, do you know anybody that actually does this stuff? Oh, yes. Yes, a hundred times. Yes, yes, yes. For centuries, godly men and women have been living with a threefold cord of groaning, hoping, waiting, groaning, hoping, waiting, tiptoe expectation and anticipation, eyes wide, gripping their father's hand without all the explanations they want, but promises who he is and what he's done and what he says. And some of them are sitting around you right now. I could go the rest of the afternoon just telling stories of people who have persevered in the face of things that should have just been it. It. I have permission to tell the story of one. Matt and Tammy Grubbs and our own church family. They suffered the death of their 15-month-old daughter, Emma Joy Grubbs. Now, my pain was a stillborn baby boy that we buried. Can you imagine the additional pain of, you've lived with this child. You know her ways. I don't know what Aaron Claiborne Bigney was going to be like. They've seen Emma Joy laugh. They've spent time with her. They've played with her. And then she began to fall apart. After months, she had a very extremely rare disease called Sandoff disease or lysomal storage disorder that just began to debilitate her to where it ended in a hospital room at Children's Hospital with her blind, deaf. One of the hardest things I ever did was walk into that hospital room to see a, a baby girl like that. But here was my joy as I walked in. There wasn't hardly any room for me because the small group and the small group leaders were already there and had been there for days, vigilant with them, bringing hope and waiting to that situation that was still agonizing. Two days before Mother's Day, 2012, she died. Imagine that. But I want you to hear what she wrote me eight months after we did a funeral. And she's, she'd be the first to tell you she's not perfect. But I want you to hear this mother's groaning that has cords of waiting and hoping wound around it. Listen to what she says. She says, I've been blessed to see how God has been working in my life. I'm sharing with so many about how suffering well through my trial has produced such a closeness with my heavenly father that I can only attribute it to being on my knees and learning about who he is and what his son did for me. Had I not been in the word and laying myself at the foot of the cross, I would today be a bitter and angry woman. Yeah. We got some bitter, angry men right here. Because apart from saturating yourself here, that's where you'll head. Your groaning will just be groaning, raw, suffering. Unless you come here to see the glory, to get the hope, to get the expectation. She says, 2002 was my worst year ever. And yet the year where I found out what it really means to trust him. I am learning She hasn't arrived yet. I am learning to go through trials with the knowledge that God is in complete control and I have nothing to fear. I don't like trials, but I am learning to love what they produce. Thank you for teaching us from God's word and loving us enough to point out tough stuff. And oh, this is tough. But I am finding such joy 
and hope in hiding his word in my heart. And then she attached a poem that I want to read to you as we close because, oh my goodness, this poem has all three of those chords woven all the way through it. Groaning, hoping, waiting. She says, as I reflect on what this year has brought, the pain and heartache and what I was taught, filled with grief and heart-wrenching pain, my life has changed with dramatic strain. God saw fit to call my baby back home, leaving me feeling sad, but not alone. Brought to my knees with need for him more, seeing his sweet love and what was in store, he showed me how a father truly does love and the joys that await in heaven above. He showed me the hope I needed to see. The foot of the cross is where I must be. His son was sent so that I may live and receive the prize only he can give. What joy, what joy my heart can feel. The love from the Father is certainly real. I am sweetly reminded of his amazing grace and the joy of Jesus I cannot replace. I can cry with hope that one day I'll see the awesome splendor heaven has waiting for me. This mommy is sad for the loss of her girl. The outcome of a fallen, lost, and broken world. But God is just He will come again. Joyfully, I wait, serving till then. This woman sits right over here in the third service, still sings, lifts her hands, still teaches in VBS, still evangelizes, shares the gospel with other people, and still cries on certain days of the year and sometimes every day of a week, right? Is that wrong? No. Don't don't look at her and say, oh, you shouldn't cry. You cry, but we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. There's a groaning, and it's raw at times, but it is bearable as you have hoping and waiting woven around it. Folks, that's how you persevere. That's how you put into practice Romans chapter 8. I know you're groaning. The question is, what do you do with it? And if you don't go here by the Spirit of God living in you and the Word of God speaking to you, you won't have this threefold chord of groaning, waiting, hoping, groaning, waiting, hoping that will enable you to persevere. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the help and hope that we get Lord, though we don't get all the explanations we wish, we get promises, promises. And it's just not your word pressing on us from the outside. It's your spirit groaning with us on the inside and through us, giving us understanding from your word, helping us to build a heavy ledger on that side of glory so that the scales can tip and we can live with a sense of weightiness that the glory outweighs the groaning oh lord work in us help us and use us as we wait for you in jesus name we pray amen